Willow, we're really grateful. We're grateful that you're here this weekend as we continue this really important conversation that we're just calling Let's Talk About It. It's a series designed to talk about some really important things like anxiety and depression and grief. Uh, They're not always the most fun topics, but I would argue that sometimes they can be the most important topics. And yet, for whatever reason, for decades, there have been stigma around these issues of mental health, that, that for whatever reason, we've leaned out and chosen not to talk about it. However, I think that we are all better served when we choose to lean in and lean into the very important conversation, and we choose to vocalize, and we choose to talk about it. So that's the journey that we continue today. You know, I think about the stigma that sometimes it gets tied to mental health, and and I often wonder, like, what's really behind that? It kind of makes me think of this. uh, uh, As a parent, there have been lots of moments where one of my two boys, they get physically sick, you know? I remember a time not that long ago that one of my boys had the stomach bug, and it was a nasty stomach bug. Now, I don't know how you deal with that around your house. In our home, we kind of have the proverbial vomit bucket that we put right next to our son's bed. And, you know, we're with him, but in case of emergency, it's just kind of there for you. And I remember this one particular time, my son was incredibly sick. He had his head buried in the bucket. And as he's using the bucket, he's apologizing to us, mom and dad, I'm so sorry. Like, buddy, what are you, what are you, what are you sorry for? I'm just sorry that I'm sick. Now, what's interesting in the moment is it was nothing for me to lean in, to have incredible amounts of empathy and compassion, doing whatever I could to take care of my son who was physically ill. And oftentimes, we don't have a challenge leaning in when somebody is struggling with physical illness, whether that's the stomach bug or cancer or whatever the physical ailment might be. It's no problem for us to lean in with empathy and compassion around physical illness, but sometimes because we don't really know what to do, there can be a tendency to lean out when it relates to mental illness. But but I would say one of the most important things that we do is with the same level of empathy and the same level of compassion, we choose to lean in in anything as it relates to mental illness. Now, the truth is this. we, We all experience at least moments or seasons that we wrestle through our own mental health. A pastor friend of mine said it this way. He says that we're not all going through the same thing but we're all going through something, right? That like all of us, to varying degrees, we all kind of have moments that we wrestle with our mental health. And we don't have to have a stigma around that. It's not our fault necessarily. We find ourselves in a hard situation and it's okay to lean into the conversation with empathy and compassion. Now today we're gonna talk specifically about depression. Now candidly, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a licensed counselor, I'm a pastor. And so I'm going to look to some biblical truths, but I certainly want to point us to some professional helps that can be really, really helpful for us. But let me do this to start off the conversation. I think that there's a very important distinction between feeling depressed and clinical depression. Feeling depressed is a pretty universal experience. It's when you and I experience a really hard thing in life, and because of that really hard thing that we experience, we feel feelings Uh, that that are depressed feelings. So if we were in a long-term relationship and we experienced a breakup, that wouldn't be surprising that we would feel depressed. If there was a job that we really wanted, that we've been interviewed multiple times, we've been praying for, we felt like God was leading us to this job, but for whatever reason, we didn't get the job, that might cause us to feel depressed. Feeling depressed is what Bears fans experience most days. (laughs) 
right? Although there was a good trade this week. Maybe that, maybe that gives some Bears fans some hope, right? But what's interesting is, that's what you're clapping for. I love it. Okay. But here's, here's what's interesting. The feelings, like feeling depressed, pretty universal. There's a distinction between feeling depressed and what I would call clinical depression. It's, it's, it's very, very different. Mayo Clinic defines clinical depression in this way. It says depression is a mood disorder that causes, check this word out, a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. And the clinical side of depression can be brought on by a lot of things. It can be brought on by intense grief, trauma, abuse, all kinds of things that gets lodged in us. And because it gets lodged in us, it's just that there's this persistent feeling of sadness. It's almost like somebody turned the lights off and I have the inability to bring those lights back on. It's this intense sadness that has a grip on us that we can't figure out how to get out of. Feeling sad or feeling depressed is pretty universal. Clinical depression is something that many of us, maybe those of us watching online, maybe those of us in the room, there's many of us who experience this. That's our, that's our daily experience. We can mask it with a smile. We can convince other people that that's not what's going on. But the inner turmoil at times can be overwhelming. And I want you to know that no matter where you're at on this spectrum, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone because of, of others who are walking the same journey alongside of us in this community. But I also say you're not alone even when it comes to people of faith all throughout the Bible. Now certainly the, the, the terms that we're using that are more clinical terms are not the same terms that are used in Scripture. However, if you pour through the pages of Scripture, you'll find lots of people that as you listen to their words or the things that are described about them, they, they, sound, they sound like they're battling with their own mental health. David was depressed. Job was hopeless. Uh, Jeremiah wished he was never born. Elijah, and we're going to come back to his story in a little bit, Elijah was, was suicidal. What's fascinating is, is a lot of these pillars of the faith struggled and battled with their own mental health. So here's a couple things I want you to know as we really get this conversation going. Anxiety is not a sin. Depression is not a sin. Mental health is not a sin. That if I'm struggling with depression, that doesn't mean I lack faith. You can love Jesus and be depressed. You can love Jesus and go to therapy. You can love Jesus and be on medication. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. But here's what we believe. We believe in a God who will meet you right where you're at. Even in the midst of pain and hardship, in those moments of incredible darkness. It's okay to not be okay, but there's a God who cares enough so that you don't have to stay that way. Uh, throughout this series, we're leaning into the wisdom that's provided for us from a pastor, uh, author, Steve Cuss, who speaks a lot about these particular issues. So let's lean into the words of Steve Cuss. Okay, Willow family, let's talk about it. Let's get into trauma and depression. Last week, we talked about chronic anxiety, the number one anxiety that every human carries in the workplace and the home place. But trauma and depression, uh, I think every one of us have people we love in our lives who are carrying trauma or fighting depression. But of course, not all of us carry trauma and depression ourselves. I am a pastor. I'm not a clinician, but I work with a lot of people in my field who carry trauma 
who battle depression. I also have loved ones in my own life, like many of you do as well. And I had the incredible benefit of being married to a trauma therapist. My wife, Lisa, is a trauma therapist, and oftentimes we do work together. So a lot of what I've learned about it is by listening to the stories of people with trauma and also being trained by my wife on this. Let's talk about these one at a time. Let's start with trauma. Trauma is quite simply something terrible that actually happened to you in your past, and it now lives in two places. It lives in your body, and it lives in your future. This is the cruel uh, aspect of trauma, is even though it happened in your past, you made meaning about what happened, and that meaning now resides by triggering your body. So oftentimes, those of you who are carrying some kind of a traumatic incident, you think you've locked that trauma in a box deep down, but actually it keeps showing up physiologically and it keeps showing up in your future. And so this past event, what's fascinating about it is let's take something common in trauma that's safe to talk about without triggering some of you. Let's talk about a car accident. Two people can have the same car accident and one becomes fine. They just walk away and they say, that was weird. And they get along with their life. But the other one is stuck. And the reason they're stuck in their trauma and triggered is because the meaning they've made out of the car accident as it relates to safety in the future is what lodges deep and, and triggers their body. And so then anytime they get into a car, uh, maybe they have a physiological reaction. The other challenge with trauma is it acts a little bit like a sleeper cell. Uh, I've, I've worked with military veterans who have actually seen combat, maybe in Afghanistan or Iraq. They come home and they say, I'm fine. But then three years later or five years later, their life completely unravels. That's because trauma was in their body and it activated after a while, kind of like a sleeper cell does. So a few things to know about trauma. Um, First of all, a lot of people who are carrying trauma are wanting to graduate from it as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, that's not the way it works. I wish that you could work on your trauma and be done with it for the rest of your life. Now, I'm not saying that if you are carrying trauma that you need to be in therapy for the rest of your life. But I am saying that for the rest of your life, you will probably need to be in seasons of therapy it's helpful to think about trauma more like taking your vitamins or going to the gym. Maybe you don't do it every day, maybe, maybe not all the time, but for the rest of your life, you will probably need to work on it because it's less something that you graduate from and more something that you manage that activates and recedes and activates and recedes. One of the things we help people with trauma think about is that their life has shock absorbers in it. And what your trauma does is it wears down your capacity to manage the bumps in your life. So if you find yourself getting more easily tripped up, if you find yourself self-medicating in, in unhelpful ways or moving into secret habits, these might be signs that your shock absorbers are worn and it's time to get into therapy. I've also talked to a lot of people in trauma who say, look, I've tried therapy and it didn't work. 
let me say this. My wife became a therapist and then she became a trauma-trained therapist and it changed everything. So if you have not gone to a trauma-trained therapist, I would highly encourage that you find one. Willow Creek has resources where uh, this church can help you find trauma-trained therapists. We're talking things like EMDR, therapists that are trained to safely help get your trauma out of that lockbox you have it in, but also they're trained to help you with your brain function so you're able to more remember your trauma without reliving it. It's really worth it. Okay, let's talk about clinical depression. Now, now we're in the field of mental health medication. And again, of course, I'm not a clinician. This requires somebody with a medical degree. Here's what I would like to say about depression or bipolar disorder or the variety of mental health needs that really benefit from medication. Let me say this as a pastor. Number one, if you need mental health medication, you should take mental health medication and thank God that we live in the 21st century where science and we can love God with our minds and create chemicals that can really help our brain. Number two, mental health medication is not a comment on your faith. It is a comment on your chemicals. It's more about the way your chemicals are than your belief in God. I have many people in my life that require mental health medication to face the day. They are people of profound faith, perhaps even deeper faith than I have because of the ways they have to depend on God. So there's no Christian shame in taking mental health medication if you need it. Please take it. Please thank God for it. The second thing I'll say about that is uh, just the way I'm wired, I wake up happy most days. Um, and that's not my fault that I wake up happy most days. Again, for those of you who are football fans, I wake up on first and goal most days in sight of a touchdown. People who require mental health medication, uh, they wake up at the wrong end zone. They wake up at threat of scoring a safety. The, the defense is blitzing them and mental health medication, it does not get them all the way to the end zone I'm in but it does give them a more fighting chance. And the fact that they wake up that way is not automatically their fault. So if you struggle with depression, if you struggle with bipolar disorder, if you struggle with paranoid schizophrenia, some of these really difficult disorders, it may not be your fault. It is not a comment on your faith and you are worth all of the fighting involved. Let's just talk about depression. Maybe you have a loved one that battles depression. Maybe they're even on mental health medication. It's difficult, isn't it? In, in some ways, depression is a team sport. If that person is in your household, everyone is playing along and it can wear everybody out, of course, including the person who's fighting the depression. The number one challenge is the way depression affects the nervous system. It just removes your motivation toward impulse, toward action. Depression kind of exchanges that motivation for a motivation to not move. Just an incredible lethargy. Uh, very difficult to face the day. Making decisions becomes very difficult. Oftentimes, depression can show up like an overwhelming numbness or an incredible feeling of not just a black hole, but falling into that hole. And so what a lot of people who battle depression do is they just try to stay where they are so they don't fall into the hole. Now, if we're going to talk about depression, that means that we do have to talk about suicide. 
a couple of things on suicide. If you yourself are struggling with suicidal thoughts, it is so important that you talk about it. This whole series is called Let's Talk About It, and there might never be a more important time than for you to talk about your suicidal thoughts. There is no shame that you're thinking it, and it may not be your fault that you're thinking it. So if you could remove the moral judgment, because the problem with suicide is it, it its temptation is two things. Number one, it's temptation is to say, just end your life. It'll be a relief for you. It'll be a relief for others. And that's not true. There's no relief for anybody in suicide. So for some people, the challenge with suicide is it puts you in a euphoria, a false sense of relief that you almost feel a euphoria because it is so hard for you to face the day. Please, would you reach out? Willow Creek has resources and will help you. And again, much like trauma, maybe you've gotten help before, but there's still more help for you to have. The cruel aspect of depression is sometimes medication works and then suddenly it stops working and you need to change medication or try a different path. But you are worth the effort. You are worth love. You're worth receiving love. Now, finally, a word to those of us who maybe have loved ones or people in our life who express suicidal thoughts to us. This can make you really anxious, can't it? Like if somebody, maybe a child or or somebody in your workplace shares their suicidal thoughts, they take what I just said seriously and they say, okay, I want you to know I'm having these thoughts. And suddenly you're saying, what do I do? I'm an amateur. Well, of course, get that person professional help. Call the church. The church has pastors that can help connect to licensed professionals. But there's a lot that you can do as an amateur. Number one, take a deep breath. It's okay. God is with you and God is with this person. But number two, picture the conversation you have with a suicidal person like scuba diving. So let's say this is the person and this is you. And the person says, I'm feeling suicidal. That's them going deeper in the water. That what you attempted to do is to try to not talk about it. That's you going shallower to the surface. But what is most helpful for them is to match them and then go deeper down. So if they say, I have suicidal thoughts, do the counterintuitive move of asking curious questions. Get into it. What kinds of thoughts are you having? Now you're deeper. And if they go and say, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's fine. They're going shallower. That might be a sign that you can get them help, but nothing's imminent. But if they match you or go deeper and then tell you their thoughts and their graphic suicidal thoughts, you know to take it seriously. So then go deeper again, ask another curious question. If you were to kill yourself, how would you do it? What's your plan? And if they go shallower and say, oh, I've not even thought about how to do it, then you know, okay, we're not in imminent danger. We don't have to call 911. But if they give you a plan, you know. So as you ask questions that go into their suicide, you can measure, are they taking me to the surface? Are they taking me deeper? Now, this can be terrifying. It is terrifying. But here's the thing. Um, they're already thinking about it and you're not putting thoughts in their head by asking questions. You are communicating to them, I see you, I take you seriously, I care about you. So you can ask them anything. You can get graphic so long as you're curious and asking them to tell you. And what you're doing is mirroring for them so that they see in you that you are taking it as seriously or more seriously than they are. 
And as they bring it to the surface, it shows you, okay, this is not an imminent threat, but yes, we are gonna get you help. I remember it used to be when you went through airport security, there'd be a sign that said, making a joke about having a bomb is just as serious as having a bomb. We will arrest you for joking about it. Uh, suicide's kind of the same way. When somebody says they're suicidal, we say, hey, we take all of these seriously, let's get you help. That doesn't mean you have to call the police, but you should call the church and get this person some help they need. Okay, I know this was a really intense session, but it's so important to talk about it, isn't it? And so if you are carrying these things, we encourage you to talk about it in your community. Uh, reach out to the church if you don't have someone to talk about it. And I promise you, it's an incredible battle. It takes incredible bravery, but God is with you and you're worth it. See you next week. You heard when Steve Cuss was talking uh, a, a few resources that he pointed you to. Uh, I want to just make sure that we all know where those resources are located. If you go to the website, you'renotalone.cc, we'll leave that graphic up on the screen for a little while. So if you want to take out your phone and snap a picture of it, you can. We want to make sure you have that website because it just gives you a myriad of different types of resources that can serve you in so many ways. Now, as I was listening to Steve Cuss, what, what, I, what I was really leaning into is what felt like the absence of hope. In many ways, you could probably describe depression in that way. It, it is the chronic absence of hope. Uh, but I don't know about you, but I believe in a God who's the provider of hope. And so I want to do my best to, to lean into what Scripture says to provide some hope in moments that we might feel a little hopeless. And though that this is certainly not the cure to everything that we're talking about, what I hope is that there are maybe some handles that we can hold onto that could provide us help and provide us hope. And I really want to lean into two practical things. I want to challenge us in this way. I want to challenge us to speak up, and I want to challenge us to talk back. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But the first is this. I want to challenge us to speak up. Now, now, you remember earlier when I was going through the different Bible characters, these pillars of faith that many of which battled through some form of mental illness, one of the figures that I mentioned was a guy by the name of Elijah. Now, if you know Elijah's story, it's recorded for us in the book of 1 Kings. He's this powerful prophet in ancient Israel. I mean, he was, he was kind of the man. You could argue that he was the greatest prophet in, in all of Israel. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 18, you find probably Elijah's most like sparkling moment. It was, it was this amazing moment on Mount Carmel where he takes on the, the prophets of Baal. He basically talks some smack. He asks God to show up and God shows up in a big way. Go read the story. It's an amazing story. Now, isn't it often true that sometimes our highest of high moments are followed by our lowest of low moments? And that was certainly true for Elijah. Uh, after experiencing this incredible spiritual high on Mount Carmel, what happened shortly thereafter is the queen of the land, her name was Jezebel, uh, basically put a bounty on Elijah's head, saying that, that uh, he would certainly be put to death by, by her hand. And so he kind of panics and he, he flees into the desert. He's fleeing literally for his own life. He gets to the place that he is almost just ruminating on all kinds of negative thoughts. He, he, he finds himself somewhat spiraling with his life, seemed to be kind of spiraling out of control. He finds himself under this tree, and look what he says out loud to God. It says this in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. It says, he, meaning Elijah, sat down under this solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. 
Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. I mean, Elijah finds himself in an incredibly tough spot. But here's what I love that Elijah did when he found himself in an emotionally tough spot. He did what we just described. He chose to speak up. You see, oftentimes when we experience feelings of depression or we find ourselves depressed, oftentimes we retreat. Uh, we, we actually uh, withdraw. We isolate ourselves. We, we don't really say much about it. But what I love from Elijah's example, he was not afraid to speak up, even speak up to God, that God, this is how I'm feeling. He was frustrated. He was discouraged. He was depressed. God, I, I don't know that I want to continue anymore. He actually prayed that God would would end his life. Now what's interesting is that's just one example of so many different examples like it all throughout scripture where people get pretty raw and people get pretty raw and honest with God. I don't know where we came up with the idea in more recent uh, years that we have to clean our lives up in order to get to God. People in the Bible, they, they didn't clean their lives up before coming to God. They brought their messy, raw selves to God, almost with the understanding that if I bring my messy self to God, it's actually he's the one that does the cleaning up. I don't have to get my life together. I don't have to clean my life up to come to God. I can just bring him what's real and what's raw. Sometimes I talk to people just even about prayer, and sometimes people will say, I don't even really know how to pray. I don't, I don't even know what to pray. And what they're asking is, how do I pray in a way that it's right? I would say God cares far more about your prayers being real than God cares about your prayers being right. Just bring your real prayers to God. Did you know that the Psalms, it's, it's right in the middle of the Bible, it's a collection of people's prayers. Some of them are songs, but most of them are prayers. There's 150 psalms uh, in that middle section of the Bible. Did you know of the 150 psalms, 50 of those psalms could be labeled as psalms of lament. Uh, it, it, uh, they're lament. They're, they're psalms of intense sadness, emotion, very, very real and raw prayers from God. What's fascinating is sometimes what's being said isn't even true. It's just real. And so you'll read Psalms where people will say things like, God, why have you forsaken me? Has God actually forsaken them? No. But does it feel that way? Yes. You'll read in the Psalms, God, why don't you care about me? Does it mean that God stopped caring? No. But does it feel that way? Yes. But the Bible almost gives us permission to bring our real and raw selves to God. It's okay to not be okay and trust that God will meet us in that place. It's okay to speak up. Uh, speak up in a real and raw way to God. But I would say not just to God. I think it's also really wise to speak up with others. I love the story that we started the message off with, with, with Katie and Liz's story but it all started when, when Katie finally vocalized, I'm not doing okay. And then a great friend that wasn't necessarily concerned about what was said, but was very concerned about just being present with her friend in the grief and in the hurt. Speak up. Now let me do a, just a quick little aside to what we talked about earlier as we talked about what it would look like to potentially run the marathon this year with Willow and Team World Vision. Now, now, certainly, again, it's not a cure to this conversation, but I would say that the mental health benefits around taking this kind of step can be tremendous. 
I mean, there's something about when you put your life in the context of community and you do something with other people that are with you, that are journeying with you. It's an amazing, amazing community that God does to bring hope to, to our souls. Uh, not only that, to, to allow your life to be about a cause that's much bigger than yourself and invest your life in a purpose bigger than yourself can lift, have this sense of like lift in your own journey. Uh, so to really be a part of something significant can be life-changing, much less just the activity of moving, of exercising. It has all kinds of mental health benefits. I'm in to run the Chicago Marathon again. I love to invite you to come and join us, uh, be a part of this meeting afterwards. Again, it's not the cure to mental health, but there are amazing, amazing mental health be uh, benefits when we engage our lives in things like this. So speak up. Here's a second piece. Be willing to talk back. Specifically, like being willing to talk back to our depression. Uh, someone said it this way, that when it comes to depression, we oftentimes don't see things the way they actually are. We see things in the way that we are. In other words, when I find myself in a really depressed state and I've got all kinds of negative thoughts and patterns that are floating around in my mind, I can't help but see everything through that lens, through that lens of depression. And so I'm no longer seeing things the way that they actually are. I see the things through the way I am. And sometimes I've got to recognize that the conclusions that I've drawn are not true conclusions. And I've got to be willing to talk back to those and actually right-size some of the things that, I, that, that are in my head. And what happens often is when we experience a lot of hard times, uh, the, the, the negative thoughts or the negative events or the negative emotions can start building momentum. And the, the true thing is that, that sometimes the negative thoughts or the negative circumstances, they were true things, but they can build momentum in such a way that they can cause us to draw conclusions that are false conclusions that are more permanent and destructive. And so we've got to stop that momentum. In a sense, we've got to, we've got to talk back. Uh, I, I see this playing out in Elijah's story. Again, as, as Elijah cries out to God, they engage in this conversation. Uh, God asks him, like, tell me more about what's going on. And so as he speaks up, here's what he says. He says, I, I've, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. It's true. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. It's true. They've torn down your altars. True. And killed every one of your prophets. Not quite true. And I am the only one left. False. Do you see the pattern of what can happen? When we have a few negative true things, it begins to build momentum. And if we're not careful, we can cause us to draw a false, more permanent, destructive conclusion. I can't be too hard on Elijah. What's interesting, in this moment, like God like interrupts him. God kind of talks back to him and says, let me challenge your false conclusion. Uh, you're, you're not the only one left. There's, there's 7,000 faithful people who have not bowed their knee to the prophet Baal. Not only that, you're not even the only prophet left. I'm raising up another prophet right now. His name's Elisha. You're about to anoint him that, that God talks back to the false conclusions that Elijah's drawn. We've got to be cautious to not do the same thing. And when we sense the momentum, be strong enough to talk back to the false conclusions we draw. In your own life, you may say something like this. It's been a really hard year. That's true. 
Things are not really going my way. That's true. I feel like some people that I love have turned their back on me. That may be true. I picked up some old addictions. I've started some new ones. It's true. They will never change, and I won't change either. False. It won't get better. False. I don't seem to matter. False. They won't miss me if I'm gone. False. Do you see how that can happen? That there's a few true negative circumstances and thoughts, if we're not careful, will gain momentum and cause us to draw these more permanent, false, destructive conclusions. And at some point, we have to be willing to, to face it. Sometimes we need an outside voice of a therapist. Sometimes we need a really good friend to come alongside of us and call out what's actually true. Because we often don't see things for the way they actually are because we can't help but see it through the lens of who we are. And so if you'd allow me to challenge you, I wanna challenge you in this way. If depression is the chronic absence of hope, I want you to know about a God who's the incredible dispenser of hope. And sometimes the best way to break up that momentum we described is we look back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross, we actually see what's actually true. We see a God who understands our pain, that's true. We understand a God who cares about our pain, that's true. We understand a God who gave himself for the sake of our pain that you and I might experience healing. We look back not only to the cross, we look back to the resurrection. We discover that there is new hope, there's a new beginning, there's new opportunity, there's new life that's found in Him. Depression doesn't have to be the final say in our lives. We can allow the hope of God to speak hope into our lives, even in the most broken moments. You matter to God. You matter to us. You're worth it.